Welcome to Generative Leaders, a series of conversations with leaders generating positive outcomes for society, the planet and future generations to inspire, challenge and have fun with what's universally true of the human mind. I'm your host, Julia Rupholtz, and this week to help me, I'm in conversation with Sasha Dench. So today, I'm really delighted to be with Sasha, who is the founder of Conservation Without Borders. And Sasha, to my mind, exemplifies a regenerative leader who really wants to create impact in the world. And she probably doesn't know that about herself too much either. (laughs) And uh, Sasha and I have been having a number of conversations about what she's leading at the moment, how to bring that to life, how to create the kind of impact that she wants to create and, and really has visioned in her mind. And I thought it'd be really useful to hear directly from Sasha for for others that are trying to create impact in the world. So Sasha, I'd love to, in your own words, to share with the listeners, what is it that you're you're leading at the moment? Well, at the moment, I'm leading the organisation and a team of people who've come on board for this project on an expedition following the migration of a bird, the osprey all the way from the highlands of Scotland to West Africa, all the way down to Ghana. I mean, how do you even come up with the idea to follow the ospreys from Scotland to Ghana? And, um, and, and what, kind of, what kind of impact are you trying to create in doing that? To cover that, I've got to go back a few years to 2015, 2016, when I was asked to help a lot of scientists look at an issue for another bird for the Buick Swan. Its numbers were in decline. They'd been in decline for about 20 years. And in that time, we'd lost almost half the population. The situation was that there'd been a global action plan had been written for them. Various scientists had studied different elements of the flyway, but they were really struggling with a few things. One of those was when you looked at all the dif- all the data, all the threats in the different countries the birds migrate from, and that's the Russian Arctic all the way back to the UK across Europe. When they looked at all the data, the numbers were dropping faster than the cumulative effects of all the threats that they'd identified. So there was something missing along the flyway. But the critical thing they'd asked me to come and help with was looking at how to engage all the people that currently weren't engaged. So they'd written umpteen scientific papers. A global action plan had been written, but they were coming to the realisation, actually, that very few people, apart from the scientists that that were writing them and their scientific circles, were actually seeing that. So how do you get mass public engagement, the engagement of industry who could change some of those things? and the public and people in some remote areas. You know, the birds are flying across some of the remotest parts of the planet, the Russian Arctic, the tiger and the tundra. How do you engage people all along that flyway to help us find what that missing factor was, but also get behind initiatives to try and save them? And so I think what they were asking me to do was figure out how to write really powerful letters that get people to meetings. And I sat there in a room with all of this data and thought like there is no way in the world that meetings are going to do this fast enough. And I also 
have lived in all different sorts of communities in my life, including hunting communities. And I just thought inviting people to meetings isn't necessarily going to be what does the trick if shooting was one of the was one of the major problems. Shooting and eating of lead pellets from shooting was one of the issues. Inviting people to meetings wasn't going to work and wasn't going to work fast enough. And so I tried to really think big picture about it all. So I sat there and looked at it all and I looked at the migration route of the birds and I'd I don't think I'd ever really understood quite how uh, impressive a journey the, the birds took. So all the way from the Russian Arctic to the UK, that means they're starting up in the land of the in the land of the polar bears. They're flying across these amazing wild areas of the Arctic. Then there's the the castles of Europe. There's vast agricultural lands, and there's the storms and all the weather involved in all of that. And I thought, firstly, like the, the best way that you're going to reach ordinary people is by telling them an incredible story and there is your incredible story with the birds doing that journey and also dodging bullets and all kinds of other threats maybe we could tell a kind of a James Bond story for the birds but how to bring that story to life was obviously a really big question then and I was already flying paramotors for aerial imagery so I've worked for a wetland conservation charity and others for ages and there's nothing like getting photographs from above of a wetland and the the threats that it faces to really make it clear to people because when you're on the ground and you look across at a lake kind of you see a stretch of water and that's about it from above you can see how it connects with the wider landscape and so I was already doing aerial photography for that and I just put a few pieces together and thought what if I fly in the paramotor all the way with the birds I fly at a similar speed and altitude to them if I flew with them I could essentially see the world from their eyes and maybe that's how we could help to find those missing pieces of the puzzle also with a paramotor, because you take off and land on your feet, I can stop and talk to anybody we see along the way. So there was plenty to learn, I was sure, from all of the all of the people that live with and see the swans at different stages of their journey. That's where we might find those missing pieces. So yeah, I put that idea together and the scientists along the flyway, although they often work for quite conservative thinking organizations, were desperate enough that they were kind of said, this is so mad, it might just work. So that's what I did. And I just had a gut feeling that it was going to work. And it got to a point where there were so many challenges. And I I won't deny that there were ridiculous challenges. Like, how do you convince the Russians to let me fly in a tiny paramotor that isn't picked up on radar across five of their heavily guarded border regions in a little aircraft with cameras filming the whole thing? There were going to be huge challenges. Not only that, like, how how would I pick up fuel and things on the way? But as I went along, more and more people stood up. And as as an obstacle appeared somebody would uh, pop up and and offer to solve my problem. So crossing the Russian Arctic, I was given a small amount of money to go up to the Arctic and speak to people, uh, try and figure out how I cross the Russian Arctic where there's very little infrastructure. There's certainly no roads, no runways or anything. And I gathered the people that I thought were potentially the most helpful at understanding logistics in the Arctic. And they were the hunters and hunting community, hunting tourism people. And I stood up in front of them with my map and asked various people there certain questions. One of them was, I pointed to some of the towns across the north and said, you know, are there places there that I could buy fuel? And a load of them chuckled and said, well, do you know what the word means in brackets after the name of that town? Which I didn't because I hadn't learned my Russian by that time. Um, and it meant abandoned. So I um, had obviously asked them a pretty stupid question. And, and they were there was a bit of laughing going on. 
But eventually just, yeah, all it took was one guy to stand up and he started making little crosses on the map. And he was showing where he could leave fuel drops for me. He was a bush pilot and he was dropping people off in hunting huts. So with him offering to do that, and he was obviously well respected by the community, suddenly this room full of men stopped laughing and asking. So he's the actual pilot, assuming that as a female, it couldn't possibly be me. Suddenly there was like more discussion about, oh, yes, how can we help? If, if Vlad's going to do that, but how, how else can we help? So obstacles appeared, but people came on board to help. And I started to realize, actually, was it, was it me? Was it the power of the story of the swans? And this idea that actually we have a, an amazing bird, an incredible bird. It does an incredible journey. The, the loss of it would be sad for everybody. I think a load of people bought into that story, but they were also seemed to also be sucked in by my optimism and this feeling that, no, we can... We, of course we can do this if enough of us get together. So I started to realise there, I suppose, the power of telling stories to people and that people were motivated potentially by bigger things than we think. Everybody else had said to me beforehand, the hunters will never, the hunters won't talk to you. Uh, the hunters won't want to listen to you talking about losing swans. But actually, if you ask the hunters to help you do an impossible journey and tell them why you care about the swans, I've actually found you can make them care about something much bigger than themselves, much bigger than their next hunting trip. And so I guess that was the, the start of the journey. I eventually flew with the Buick swans. And on the back of that, I was made UN ambassador for migratory species. So I never intended for my thing to be flying with birds or following birds on migration. But I'd say my initial inspiration was hearing a load of scientists uh, with a problem. I really believed in them, what they were trying to do, but could see they needed a pretty radical solution. And just strangely, I put together a solution that combined all of my strengths, which were flying paramotors, I grew up in the Australian bush, so I don't mind spending time in remote areas, camping out night after night. And I quite like meeting strangers, and I'm pretty good at picking up languages. So all of those weird pieces were pulled together. And I came up with this idea of, of flying, flying with the birds, and it worked. So now I'm on a mission to, to do more of those things. But I guess what I've really seen is that the point of view of the birds is so powerful, but for so much more than just bird conservation. So on the next project, we're looking at the flight of the osprey. But what we're really looking at is all the complex issues that we're facing today, the loss of biodiversity, climate change, etc. But looking at it through the eyes of a single species gives you really tangible examples. And it makes a lot of things clear and understandable for people. And I can tell the story in a way that people's heads don't explode. <laughs> so, Sasha, what you've been really pointing to is, to, you know, I was hearing two things. One is when you kind of zoom out from what you're seeing at a linear level and you kind of really take a step back, you're able to see the picture much more clearly. And secondly, when you're able to see the picture much more clearly, you're able to see how you need to lead the different pieces and how they fit together. So is, is that what regenerative leadership means to you in terms of, you know, making things happen and, and making things change? Well, I think well, I hadn't heard of the term regenerative leadership until I met you, but I guess what it invokes in me is, well, I definitely see that looking at things from the big picture feels to me like it's got to be an essential part of it, the ability to, to step back. And there's 
good things from that. And what I definitely noticed from the air is that you see better the interconnectedness with things. So if you're interested in looking at systems and systems change, I think that's quite a that's quite a useful thing. But there's another benefit of being being up high and looking at things from from above in that the problems all seem to make a little bit more sense, but they also seem slightly easier to solve. Um, they all look a bit smaller. And that I found personally was important in reminding, well, certainly in reminding myself, whereas my whole aims, what I'm driven by are seeing problems in the world and coming up with solutions to try and find it. I gave up ages ago, having money as my main aim, despite lots of people saying, well, with your intellectual abilities, you should be in a, in a role which is making you lots of money. And I tried in various occasions that thought, actually this isn't, just isn't what drives me. I know this 100% now, it is not what drives me. And so I guess a part of it is looking at things from the big picture is really important. But I think, yeah, regenerative leadership brings up a few other ideas for me. One of those is, I suppose, for me, this idea that in any organization, you're part of a system, you're part of the ecology of the world, and your aim has got to be to be leaving it in a better state than what it started, which hasn't been the case in the future. So regeneration on the big picture, but also I think uh, it makes me think of this idea of regenerating of, of people and all your, your human resources as well. So I, I guess what I focus on with, with people is that I really try and see, and everybody that's working with me or volunteering with me, I'm constantly trying to look for what are the magical pieces in them which give them the most power or where they can find their strongest powers. So I guess in my early 20s, where lots of our volunteers are in their early 20s, I had no idea what I was good at. I was told what I was good at. I'd been told what I was good at many times over. And that was, I've been told when I was young that I was intellectual, not practical. They seem to be like, if you're intellectual, you're not practical. And I have like, that didn't really fit. I used to like maths competitions, for example. I was pretty rubbish at most things to do with English. But I was definitely told I was intellectual, not practical. Told many things that didn't really fit very well with me. So in my early 20s, I just decided to start following my heart and try as many things as possible until I was 30. And then by 30, I would have had it all figured out. But I guess I, I really like to focus on encouraging the same in, in young people. I think a lot of them have grown up in a system which has encouraged them to study and be a certain thing. But I think in school these days, you just don't have the opportunities to learn enough about who you are. That's my perception anyway. And I think I had... An, an, one other element of my upbringing being growing up in the Australian bush where you have to make your own fun and you're given huge amounts of freedom. It meant that I, I think I could sort of experiment more and figure out just what sorts of things I, I was good at, what I liked. One of the things I feel having worked in the environmental sector now for, I'm afraid to say, a couple of decades, I would love to see oh yes there's various various ways that i think the the environmental ngo sector develops a system of competition between organizations which is really unhelpful and really wasteful we've also ended up in a few narratives which i find really painful and this is an incredible simplification and not about everybody but when i look at it quite often when you've got your fundraising team separate to your research teams, you end up in a system where the researchers identify problems, the fundraisers, you know, make use of those problems because that's they're the tearjerkers that will bring in the revenue. But in there's nowhere in the system where 
the main aim is to find really incredible solutions. And that for me is a hugely flawed system. Whereas I guess in the, in the corporate world, you'll find the whole organization is aimed at say selling more product. That is your, your aim. I don't feel like we have that in the NGO sector. It's kind of focused on getting as many members and making sure you've got revenue to keep going. But it feels like there's a broken element of the system, which is solving the problems. There's actually no major reward for solving a problem because people are then no longer interested. And it's no longer a story that keeps allowing you to generate revenue. And I also think that means NGOs probably don't employ the right mix of people from all different sorts of backgrounds with all different sorts of skills to really look at, at a puzzle and think, actually, we've got a problem. It might be an animal going extinct, but what is the big picture? What are all the pieces in the puzzle and how do we manipulate those to really generate change? I don't think most NGOs are built to do the best job of that at the moment, um, hence why I want to try doing things differently. I will associate with, collaborate with every NGO out there working in the area that I am. We will share all of our resources, our photographs, our video, which nobody ever does. We will promote the work of people who are doing incredible work. But yeah, we are 100% focused on what is the problem that we're trying to solve. You touched on a few things there in terms of looking at a problem and then understanding all the different pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. And then, you know, figuring out how to configure them to to solve solve the problem and that that you know requires a different style of leadership you know not one of telling people what to do but one of collaborating and bringing people together and being prepared to to think really broadly and speak to very different people with very different background and skills and often very different views from your own right absolutely so you shared with me, Sasha, some of your key moments of insight that have unlocked that way of thinking for you, because it's not the traditional way of thinking about problems and about problem solving. So it'd be great to hear, you know, what were, what were some of those moments that you can reflect back on that where something really changed in you that made you go, huh, I've got to see the world in a different way here. The key one would be one that I probably don't share with many people, maybe not with enough people, was a moment in Spain. I was kind of between a couple of the, the roles that I'd done. And I was actually pretty frustrated, a bit confused in my early 20s. I had just had a horrible breakup with somebody, had quit my job to try and uh, repair the relationship. And anyway, lots of things had gone wrong. And I was a bit lost. I'd been teaching English for ages and actually this kind of wasn't really what I wanted to be doing either. And I ended up in a state of pretty serious depression. I suppose the most depressed I have been. Miserable about all sorts of things and to the point where I had considered jumping off a balcony. I was lived in a very high apartment building and I'd been lay on the floor for two days, not wanting to pick myself up off the floor. And considering I'm generally a really positive, optimistic person, this was a really unusual state for me. And I remember, yeah, looking over the balcony and just thinking, God, this would just take everything away. That would be great. And then I, then I thought, actually, I've been so sort of independent my whole life since sort of leaving home kind of around 15, 16. My parents actually didn't know exactly where I was living at the time. I wasn't sure how long it would be before anybody even knew that I was missing. I went through all these other thoughts of God, you know, I, they won't know where I am. 
and isn't this miserable? She was going down to more and more and more of a miserable track. And then I remember looking at the stars and thinking actually how insignificant I was in the real world. And this started off as a being a very negative thought. I'm so insignificant. I could jump off this now and nobody would know that I'd gone and nobody would even notice for a long time. And I'm such a tiny little dot on this enormous planet. Do I mean anything at all? And then I somehow switched it in my head around to, well, if I'm just a tiny blip in the world and the world's kind of turning anyway and the systems of the world will go on anyway, does it really matter what I do? And if it doesn't really matter what I do, could I actually just try doing anything? And it might work and it might fail. But in the end, the big pitch does it really matter. And I ended up deciding that actually I should just follow whatever mad, crazy dreams I had and see where it took me. And that's, I suppose a moment for me which was very liberating this idea that yes I'm really small potentially insignificant on this planet for a tiny period of time in the grand scheme of things but why not then just make the most of my time here and follow my heart and my passions and that has always been about conservation making the world a better place and so that's I suppose where this idea of why not aim for the stars if you want to try and make a difference that's where that came from. And the sort of lack of fear of failing, that I think has also had a big impact there. Because I didn't have that as a child, just to be very clear. I was very good at maths as a child, but I once cried because I got 99% in a maths test. That's how scared I was of failure. So uh, getting one wrong in 100 for me was a failure and like everybody, it would be awful. And that's now gone. So yeah, that was that was definitely a moment for me. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Sasha, because it's, it's obviously you know, a very, a very personal moment that you had where, you know, faced with your own depression, it looked like the only way out was, was for this physical form not to, to be here. Mm-hmm. But there was something, there was something deep inside of you that sort of gave you another option and, you know, kind of generated something in you that said, well, hang on a minute. If you're not significant, then there's nothing to fear. And if there's nothing to fear, then why don't you just follow your heart and everything will just unfold? And it sounds like, you know, that that moment gave you that resilience to see every obstacle as not something to be afraid of or scared of. It was a new opportunity for that that resilience and that intelligence to see who you needed, who you needed to bring together and and see what happens next. Yeah, and definitely a moment of like of considering like what if I made this the end makes you feel like, you know, this is a gift, this extra time. It seems really dramatic and I almost don't recognize it now because I'm, you know, in general such a such an optimist, but that definitely I guess was a was a defining moment for me. There's been a couple of others, maybe not quite as huge, but certainly in terms of my journey to figuring out how to drive change or from a scientist to, I think, somebody who thinks a bit more in sort of spider webs of, of networks and, uh, and different people. So I, at one point in Australia, I used to go out swimming every day. I started to go and swim out to the shark nets that were off the beaches, Sydney. And um, I 
was absolutely horrified by the a the concept of a shark net once I saw what it was, but also by the things that were being caught in it. So shark net, people assume, is like a big net that stops sharks from getting to the beach. But on a beach like Coleroy was one of the beaches they would go to, it's five kilometres long, and the shark net is two little strips 100 metres long, one at one end of the beach, one at the other, just about a few hundred metres out to sea. And it's just meant to randomly catch things. So it doesn't go all the way to the bottom, doesn't go all the way to the shop but it randomly catches stuff that's swimming around and it would catch big angel sharks and they don't really have like biting teeth. They certainly couldn't do any damage to anybody. We catch baby hammerheads just because of the shape of their head, all sorts of fish and other things, dolphins. So it's basically a random, it's doing random culling off the beaches. And I looked at that all and thought, okay, this is this makes no sense whatsoever. I can't believe people aren't up in arms about it. Well, they surely they would be if they knew, knew more about it. So through Freedom of Information, I got records from... Uh, the government with all the things that were caught in the shark nets and it was given to me on printed out paper with draft written all over it so that I couldn't photocopy it and automatically get into numbers I presume so a friend and I typed those all out so we could do calculations on them and then we ended up with data on what was being caught and how much of that was actually of any danger to people and nobody really cared it was statistics and data and I was I was kind of horrified by that and then so as a scientist you would think people will respond to to data that's making no sense Uh, and then next thing you know I decided to start going out with a camera and filming my swimming along the shark nets recording what was there and there was a bit more interest in that because I had a you know some interesting visuals to go alongside it suddenly the news would occasionally pick up on it and then I became Australian freediving champion completely separate to being a, a biologist and I was a yeah national sports champion and suddenly everybody wanted to know my opinion on the shark nets quite often not even asking whether or not I was a biologist or had any data and I at the time just was I was absolutely horrified. I was mortified that they were interested in what a sports person had to say. And then I just had to have a word with myself that actually, what was the point in fighting it? If this was the way the kind of system worked and this was what was putting the Sharknet stuff onto national primetime news, why should I fight it? This is like more about, I guess it was my first moment of really thinking, you've got to kind of understand a system and understand that humans don't necessarily think logically or make decisions logically and actually that there are powerful triggers in the human brain like human stories that you really need to make use of powerful visuals and and human stories and I suppose that has also set me off on my journey so quite often when I'm asked to when I've been asked to help with a problem so one of those was tiny bird that migrates from Russia uh, the Russian Arctic all the way down to Thailand etc so it goes on the East Asian Australasian flyway tiny little brown bird little brown job who's going to care about this little brown bird that's the most threatened bird in the in the world I looked at all of that and thought actually the key thing for me the bit that actually got me into the story was the stories of the people up in the Arctic who are trying to find these little birds, find their nests, keep some eggs in captivity. And um, though those human stories are potentially the way that we get through to people and then we can introduce them to this very cute little brown bird. But yeah, the, the power of human stories and that you've got to really imagine what people might uh, talk to people about at a pub if you're thinking what story is going to get their attention, that it's probably not going to be data, even if it's really shocking statistics, it won't necessarily make somebody move somebody the way a story will. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I love, I love what you're saying, Sasha, because it's, you know, you've, you've, without any education, you have intuitively observed 
that what creates a realization and a change in one person doesn't necessarily do it for another person you know and we 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 see this all the time you know it's like if data and statistics made people do stuff no one would smoke anymore right because <laughs> we'll put those pictures on the side of cigarette packets showing you know the de- devastation and damage that it that it does and and yet still people smoke but there's something in the storytelling that as you said you know in in the human condition these triggers get made and people start to have realization and it's it's what realization creates the change that happens for people but it happens on the inside it's not something that happens on the on the outside and I know that you've been sort of learning about that through your own you know journey that you've that you've been on and and you've also been learning about your mind and how it works and how it how it works for for all human beings and obviously that that capacity for realization is something that we're all we're all born with but what it produces is different in in every one of us Mm. Um, and so you started to sort of touch on it in terms of what you've been learning about the human mind how it works and and how how change happens yeah well I guess I I am just learning and I, I think from what you just mentioned there this idea of how what moves different people I guess one thing that put me in a different position on, say, the this flight with the swans to the other researchers was that I was regularly putting myself right in front of people and different communities. So we could have sort of thought about the message at a big picture. And it's one thing to sort of put, put a message out in press releases. It's a very different thing to fly and stop and land and talk to people everywhere from Nenets people living in a hut with their reindeers uh, in a sort of teepee type structure with their reindeers in the Arctic to a Polish fish farmer to a kind of lord somewhere in the UK. I basically had to stop and land and like my message was tested face to face with all these different people. So you get a very kind of instant gut feeling of how is this landing and you can sit there and watch people's faces and see which part of this message is kind of resonating for you? What what bits actually spark your interest? And then I kind of realized the key thing to the beginning is to spark people's interest. And that is not hard when you land in their backyard with a paramotor. That's the one thing. Like you're going to start a conversation whether you like it or not. Some of them will be a little bit shirty, but actually it happened very little. But on the whole, that whole flight of the Swans expedition, the only angry person I met was a school grounds manager in Kent in Rochester. Um, I'm desperate to go back there and speak to him at some point. Everybody else was, uh, as soon as I take my helmet off and people can see I'm female, they're instantly kind of ask, oh my gosh, where have you come from? Is it dangerous and do you need help? So uh, yeah, the, the one thing is to kind of get people's attention and then is to pique their interest, get their imagination going. And I had that easily with the story of the swan so once you know I've stopped and landed they're already like what what is this lady doing landing here and then it's your what you've come from where what do the swans do do they come all the way from the Russian Arctic as soon as we had that story you can see their imagination going and I know there's different brain regions that spark up and once you spark up that part of the brain where they're imagining and they're creating ideas it already puts them in a bit of a space a headspace of thinking about the bigger picture and I wish I'd gone and done a bit more research to remember all the different brain region names but yeah there's definitely if you if you get people thinking get their creative mind uh working maybe inspire a little bit of awe they're in the right 
head space for thinking about the big picture, potentially collaborating with people. And that's where people shared a lot of information. So I'd ask about what threats might there be in this area. And the sort of responses I got, even from hunting communities, was so different to what people told me. I had to do a specific bit of health and safety training, which was how to respond if somebody's shooting at you and how to heal yourself if you've got a bullet wound uh, in an artery. Because everybody said, go and talk to hunters about them hunting and uh, they'll shoot at you. And actually, the reaction I got everywhere was very, very different. So yes, you're right. But I guess I don't have a kind of theory of exactly how to reach different sorts of people. But certainly testing the message face to face with a group of people, you learn pretty quickly how they're going to respond. And if we break down what you what you said, you know, it's like you you have realized for yourself that everybody has the capacity for imagination. Every human being can imagine. And what they imagine, well, you don't know, but they've got this capacity for for imagination. They've got this capacity for wondering and being in awe of something. They've got this capacity to be curious. They've got this capacity to to engage. And it, it sounds like, Sasha, you really intuitively could be curious about what people were imagining and engage in that in that dialogue. Yes, and I I definitely tried to keep the conversations at that level. So again, before the expedition, we had long debates about whether the kind of message I was starting off with was, you know, we know there's a problem with swans here. We know that you're part of a problem. Like, can you help? Or should I go in with the question, like swans are disappearing, like we've lost almost half of them and we're wanting to talk to everybody to see if we can figure out how and what we can do about it. And the difference in reaction I got when I said, we've got this problem that we're trying to figure out and we're asking everybody you know have you got any ideas of how to help and I instantly got people in this kind of a phase of I guess imagining and I could get them thinking like from the eyes of the from the eyes of a swan what could be going wrong here and I just found people talked Uh, we got lots of incredible useful feedback introductions to people or I think the fish farm has changed in the last in the last 10 years maybe there's something there here like let's go down and chat to my mate who runs the fish farm um so people who were part of the problem were introduced about as um you know they could be part of the solution instead yeah and I think it's it's so important what you're what you're sharing because it's you know we sort of been told to identify the people that are part of the problem and that engaging with them where if you make somebody the issue or the problem yeah this immediate sense of resistance I'm not the problem whereas if you say to people we have a problem and it's a collective problem yeah do you have a point of view do you have a a a sense of of what you know, it opens up this space of imagining, it opens up this space of wondering, it opens up this space of of insight that everybody has the capacity to to yeah. contribute to. And if you let people be part of be one of the good guys on the team that are trying to solve it before you accuse them of being the problem, then yeah, you're on a much better footing. And that's what we just found repeatedly. I think I had an amazing moment in in Belgium where a lady had, she drove all the way from Germany to meet me and the team and give us a hug 
because I think we gave her a very similar realization to what you've just mentioned. So she she and her other half had helped to like done manual labor recreating a wetland in Germany. And the, when she'd gone to look at where the different tracked swans had gone to, one of them had actually visited this wetland. So that was the first thing she saw. And then in the, there was a piece in the German news about a man accidentally shooting a Buick swan. They are protected in every part. And she was furious, absolutely furious furious about the idea and she was about to ring up and have a screaming match at the hunting association and then she said but I stopped and I thought god what because she'd followed we'd had an interesting interaction in Poland around uh, around the shooting issue there and then she stopped and she said oh, but what would the flight of the swans team do and she went onto the website and she read the various different articles and she said well maybe maybe they will be up for just talking so she said instead I called up and I asked them for a meeting and I said, like, I've seen this in the paper and it's really sad. I'm sure you're, you're disappointed as well. Would you have a meeting with me? And she said, amazingly, they said yes. And so we had a meeting and it was all very civil and they completely agreed that, yeah, this was a problem that we needed to fix. And she said, but like half an hour beforehand, I'd been fuming and I was ready to go in there guns blazing and I've no idea what sort of reaction I would have got. And now we're collaborating to try and figure out how we solve this issue. And thank you very much for, for like showing a different way, a way that was, you know, went from the stress of, God, everything's really awful and the bad guys out there are never going to change to actually, if we approach this and people in the right way and maybe kind of collaborate, we have a much better chance of finding solutions. So, yeah. And it happened in her mind. Well, true, yeah. <laughs> Which is, you know, so she went from absolutely crazy vilifying people to in her mind, something switched and opened up this space to make her wonder what the Swans team would do and then and then go and go and look at it. But what do you put that down to, that moment where something switches inside of you? I, I know you've had a lot of experiences, you know, very recently where you, you've been in that really dark place and then and then something's just just opened inside your mind. What what do you what do you put that down to? That's a very good question. I, I, the only way I can think of addressing it is by thinking of specific examples. So we, we changed quite a lot of Polish hunters' views on an issue of lead poisoning, basically. It's whether or not lead pellets that are shot out of guns are, are poisonous when water birds eat them, like 100%. There's no question of it. But the hunting community have been told for many years by the lead industry that it's nonsense and it's the thin end of the witch conservationists trying to stop you shooting. It's really not the case. I mean, in Poland, I talked about lead poisoning on breakfast television and it caused a massive uproar from different people. And we ended up with letters and calls going to the television network that were angry at the journalist who was then like asking us, what can we do about it? The same letters were going to the hunting association. They were getting angry at the television network. And in all of it, I just said, well, why don't you ask the hunting association to dinner? And the bird association we were working with who had no communication with the hunters whatsoever were like "Ugh, I couldn't bear that and they'll never say yes and they did and they came to dinner so we had like a, a conversation back and forth a very very sociable both of all of us filmed the conversation but the key thing for me what I understood in that phone call was that there was a couple of key pieces of that whole argument that the head of the association really hadn't understood the basic science to be honest it was a basic fact of and I can understand because it was a lot of scientists had just assumed that everybody would know that people hadn't understood that it was actually it was the pellets that birds were eating not pellets being shot in them so they could always say we're not shooting endangered species so it's not a problem that was a key thing but I wouldn't have understood that unless I'd been sitting over dinner chatting to somebody about it but the second most important thing was some of them said look no one from the conservation world has ever spoken to us face to face before 
And I did that as a statement in itself was like, was pretty shocking. And we hadn't done it in like a, you know, around a, around a dinner table where we were speaking to each other as humans rather than adversaries. So I guess that's a, that's a pretty simple case where it was, I guess, just reminding people that other people are, are humans when it's on a specific issue. But whether that is actually what causes, yeah, I don't know what it is that gives people a massive epiphany. I would say for me, in some cases, that the, the example I mentioned earlier was it was a pretty massive shock to the system. You know, I had almost felt like I was crumpled down to next to nothing and had a moment to actually regrow in a slightly different form where everything that I thought was the case maybe wasn't necessarily the case but I had to see that for myself rather than I think have somebody else have somebody else see that for me how do you take lots of people through that sort of journey not that we want to make people get people to the point of crumbling that's surely that's what your expertise is really well yeah and that's really what you just said Sasha is really articulates the point very well that you know if we if we remember that not everybody has had the same experience not everybody has has the same thought system you know we're essentially all living in separate realities and you know your your hunters were living in one reality with you know one one way of seeing the world and the scientists were living in their view of the world and thinking that there was an objective reality that everybody understood you know and what you did in the middle was you went hang on a minute, the hunters have got this set of thoughts and the scientists have got this set of thoughts and they are not actually, they've never had a conversation, so they've never listened to each other. And then by having the dialogue, you saw that, wow, this is just not in their thought system. Yeah. And this is what they're missing. So you saw all of the assumptions and you just kept getting more and more curious more and more curious and then there was this moment in you where you realized oh they don't know this (laughs) yeah and then it just became obvious I need to just point this out to them and then you pointed it out to them and I had to do it in a way that didn't make them feel stupid because that was also as soon as someone feels stupid you think it's like you know you've then shut them down again so in fact in that circumstance, rather than going, oh, you didn't understand the science, I just described to them the first autopsy I ever saw of a of a swan that had died of lead poisoning. And yeah. so I could then describe, okay, so we ended up cutting down the neck into the into the gizzard. And in the gizzard, there was these 17, you know, ground down lead pellets. So I just made it obvious actually that's the it's the ground down lead pellets in the stomach. And then like I described all the symptoms you could see from there. And that's- you did it without making anybody wrong. And you did it by exemplifying a story that people would be able to connect with. Yeah. And as change makers, as leaders, if we keep seeing that change happens from the inside, not from the outside. Yeah. We keep having to look at, well, where is everyone on this journey? What are they missing? And what's going to help them have the realization? And so that leadership is really facilitating that realization to happen. And a lot of what you described is is kind of parts of what you would call empathy. And for so long, we've kind of had it drummed into us that being empathetic is a bit of a weakness. I definitely say that scientists behave in that way. You know, their role is to find data and to be right. Whereas the power of like really sitting and listening to somebody and understanding what they yeah do, don't know, feel, don't feel, what they're scared of. 
that feels really like a soft skill but in fact that is where all the power is so i feel like all the power is in the is in the empathy and whether in the kind of corporate or ngo world i still don't think that people really get that well and it's and what you're describing sasha is that a lot of the time we try and empathize with other people but we're still really judging them <laughs> so you know it's like well i can be empathetic towards you but you know actually I'm, I'm i'm being really judgy and trying to make you wrong and when we go down that path and we try to make people wrong people get defensive because we're animals really if we're trying to push our point of view of the world onto somebody you know so i if i'm trying to make sasha do something but I'm talking to you really nicely and I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm saying all the right things. But my agenda, you know, it's almost like it's a bubble above my head that you, yeah. you're able to see. And yeah. that's what gets the reaction rather yeah. than, the, rather than the, the content and the words. Humans know that, don't they? Humans can pick up on whether you're really, really sitting there trying to understand where they're coming from or whether you're being kind in a in a slightly patronizing way they definitely do and they certainly do when you're kind of face to face and you've just met them so yeah I definitely feel like empathy is kind of my sort of spy skill it's like spying on some spying on the kind of the the opposition if you want to look at it in that way yeah and I think what you're really saying is that to be able to make change you've got to be able to work with everyone and so you know to work with everyone you've got to be able to tune into them and not make them wrong yeah but help them have that you know facilitate that realization for themselves and it is quite a challenging thing for certainly a lot of people who are passionate and having now worked with teams of various young people that are passionate i think potentially it's particularly strong in the young this idea of it's very difficult or you feel like to some extent you have to drop your own morals for that engagement so i give an example on the first expedition there were vegan a vegan in the team who really struggled to speak to hunters because they he just found them morally you know quite disgusting but we're talking hunters in an area where there is no agriculture the russian arctic is frozen so they live entirely off meat and then birds fish reindeer and then berries and mushrooms in the in the season pretty much and so the word hunter now to me means many many different things it's almost a useless word but when you're on a project like that or you're trying to change a system it's so much more powerful to be able to to drop I suppose the 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 lens and the morals that you would like to try and impose on others and just try and get inside their heads you've got to do that bit first and then you might find actually that you no longer find their behavior repugnant and um, you might find you do. But whatever whatever the case, you'll kind of be armed with the information uh, you need to to change the system if you if you want to. And for our next expedition, we specifically have incorporated the work of a, of a psychologist who's going to make the team do some of the challenging tasks they have to do, like save people in a car accident, whatever. But they're going to have to do it with people whose views they find difficult to swallow because that is what we'll come across all the time. The whole purpose of us being in different places is to speak to people, really find out who, the, who they are, how they think before you try and impose your, your own filter on them. And that's not giving up your morals. That's about kind of gaining more, more power in the system and more power to change. Yeah. And if you, you know, if you start to realize that you have a thought system, every single human being has a thought system and we all have preferences and that not everybody has the same preferences. 
and you know trying to get to the answer to a problem like getting somebody out of a car or conservation of wildlife is going to require all of the intelligence of all of those different people no matter what their views mm-hmm. and so the more that we can get past our own thought systems that get in the way you know they interfere and they separate us as a human species you know that's what gets in the way of us solving problems yeah <laughs> so we we're into the last few moments of of this delightful conversation sasha and and i'd just like you to share your kind of parting thoughts on you know what what would you like to share with other people that are really wanting to change the system make an impact mm. I guess the key things for me would be the fact that I, yeah, spent the time figuring out what my strengths were. And I saw a kind of fantastic diagram once, which kind of showed that the place in which you're both happy and powerful is the overlap between your skill set, the things that you were really good at, the things that your brain logically told you were important, so issues that were important, but also issues that, you know, get you fired up, that you are passionate about no matter what. If you can find an area where your passion kind of logic and your skill set are all active, then that's where you're going to be yeah, happy and you're most powerful. And there was definitely moments flying across the, the Russian Arctic where I was, you know, about 20 minutes away from landing in a community that didn't have visitors really because they didn't have roads and there were no flights in there uh, I had so I had no idea what to expect I was like could see nobody as far as I could see it was a wild Russian tundra I was in my element flying in this little paraglider and I thought for me this is this is it this is me in my element and I know I knew at that time we were getting lots of interest you know people had said the Russian Media wouldn't be interested. We'd already had 84 pieces on television in Russia talking about the the project. So I just knew it was working and I was in my element. But I also knew that there would be people who would be, if you describe to them, hanging in a little seat under a paraglider wing in the middle of absolute nowhere with no humans in sight and the odd, you know, any chance, I suppose, of, of bears and wolverines and things being around and you're about to go and land in a remote community that you know nothing about and don't really speak their language very well, most people would find that concept absolutely horrific. And that's the last place that they'd want to be. So I kind of felt like I'd really found a, found a niche where not only, yeah, I was in my element, but I was also having a, having a mass impact. And scientists along the flyway were kind of already cheering us on and going, oh my God, this is working. So yeah, I guess the key thing for me is maybe trust your gut on where you think your skills might be if I had listened to everybody that said oh you're uh, you're an intellectual but you're not practical would I ever have been brave enough to do this kind of thing probably not I think that's other people's potentially kind of limited or their own personal view of the world that potentially couldn't put those two things together I wasn't particularly good at any sport so I would have been repeatedly told well, that's kind of sporty stuff isn't for you but I just kept following things which were of interest to me and I guess learning new things because the, the more things you learn, the more potential pool of skills you've got to be able to use for different issues. So I think that's probably what I'd say. And I look back now and think I made decisions away from things which would have looked like a, you know, the sensible career path. But looking back on it, they all make sense to me now. Why jumping off to learn that language actually was really has served me in, in really good stead in the future. 
so that's it. You know, if you keep in mind the things that you're really passionate about, uh, make sure you've got a good range of skills and keep exploring what they are because they might not be what everybody has told you they are. Wonderful. Thank you, Sasha. It's been a fabulous conversation. And the last piece is how can people follow you or support you on the flight of the Ospreys? Conservation Without Borders is the name of our organization on various social medias. It's either Conservation Without Borders or See No Borders. Uh, we also do an e-newsletter through our website. So those are the, the key ways of following and supporting. And the best way you can support at the moment is to watch and share. The more people we've got on board from the start of this expedition, uh, the better. But it's gonna be one hell of a ride. Wow, what an amazing conversation with Sasha. She has done so many things in her life. Uh, we barely scratched the surface on those. Um, but I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you did, share it with someone else who needs to hear it. You can do that by going to generativeleaders.co. It's been a while since my conversation with Sasha because she's actually doing her expedition right now. She's going from Scotland following the Ospreys all the way down through Spain and through Africa. And what's really stayed with me since the conversation with Sasha that gives me goosebumps when I think about it that's happening in me right now was the moment that she realised that she was completely and utterly insignificant. That thought just popped into her head. And it was a really despairing moment for her and she sat with that thought and she lay on the floor and then her mind gave her another thought well if I'm completely insignificant and I'm a speck of dust on this mud ball that is floating through the universe then it doesn't really matter what I do and maybe I should do something that's really going to help people and help the habitat and the earth and the planet that we're living on. So she went from despair to opportunity and freedom. The circumstances hadn't changed, but her mind gave her completely new thinking. And we all have that opportunity in every moment and it's happening all the time. The other thing that really stayed with me and Sasha's taught me a lot about this is that a lot of the problems that we're facing in the world can't be solved by one person, but we can ask the questions and we can ask other people to help. And Sasha's brilliant at that. She brings people together. She asks them questions. She asks them for help. And she shares powerful stories with them. And those stories shift and move the thinking within other people. How many times have you been touched by someone's story? And it's made you sort of wake up to some of the thinking that you have, and it's changed it. We all have the capacity to do that. And you can keep following Sasha's journey. And I'll be in more conversations about the human mind on our next episode of Generative Leaders. <laughs>